direct your attention to the Word of God, the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Recall the time of this particular event in the life of the disciples. It is 50 days in the Jewish calendar between Passover and Pentecost. Seven weeks, 49 days, and then the 50th day. It is a week of weeks. It's also known as a time of festivity of every imaginable, wonderful thing you can do in a time of celebration. Prayer, rejoicing, singing, feasting. It was a harvest festival that took place. It was a festival celebrating the thing that the Lord had done in the past and in anticipation of the upcoming planting season in spring, the Lord would do it again. It was a time when you contemplated sowing and reaping. It was a time when you saw the old crucified and the new resurrected. It was a season in Israel's life that was very important to them. It was the time that the Lord spent with his disciples teaching them. So for 40 days, that is that period of time from the Passover, 40 days to the ascension, Jesus had been with his disciples, the group named here and others, teaching them and recalling to their minds all the things that he had taught them before, but specifically showing them in the Old Testament scriptures, the law and the prophets and the Psalms, all of the things concerning himself, how that he was to live the way he lived, and he was to die the way he died, and that he would be raised from the dead the way he was raised from the dead. And even though his early teaching in the synagogues had brought to their minds a certain astonishment, his teaching during this period of time brought to their hearts a sense of understanding. That's what that meant. That's what Isaiah was saying. That's why Jesus said this. That's how this all fits together. And for 40 days, Jesus was with them presently, personally, perpetually, teaching, instructing in all sorts of places. You remember he taught them, he met with them in this upper room 
this very place where they had begun to gather. It seemed to be kind of their gathering place in downtown Jerusalem. Most of these people were Galileans. They were from the North country, but they came to Jerusalem often and Jesus led them there often as he came to Jerusalem from time to time. And especially at the end of his ministry when he came there to give himself over and to be crucified. This was the place where they met, this upper room. This had become the place of gathering. This was the place where Jesus had appeared to the disciples, first without Thomas and then with Thomas. This is the place where the breathless and wearied but yet exhilarated Emmaus Road travelers had run to in the night of that first day to tell of this stranger that they had met along the road and how he had caused their hearts to burn within them with love of the things of the Lord in the scriptures. This was a time of incredible stimulation, renewal. I don't think there was any greater period of time of excitement in the lives of any of these people than there was during these days, these 40 days of all that they had seen and heard and witnessed and beginning to understand and had conversed among themselves. And this upper room became that place where they met. When Jesus took them out to the Olivet Mount and were there, he gave them his final words. He told them to tarry to stay in Jerusalem. Don't leave here and go back to Galilee, Capernaum, Nazareth, Cana, all of those places in, in Galilee where you're from and where you're used to being. But stay in Jerusalem. Keep this meeting in the upper room going. Perpetuate what we've got happening here. And then of course the cloud, the glory cloud received them received him out of their sight and he ascended. And they stood there for a while just gazing until the angel came to him and said, you men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into the heavens? This same Jesus, which you have seen taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner and Jesus had told them to not leave the neighborhood. Don't leave Jerusalem. Don't leave the city. Don't leave the city of promise. Don't leave the city of fulfillment. Don't leave the city of expectation. Don't leave the city where the temple is and where Zion is and where God dwells. Stay there. And this is a story of what they did. He said they returned to Jerusalem and they entered into the upper room where they were staying. This had become a, a place where they had just camped out. This may be the first old fashioned camp meeting, I don't know. <clears throat> and they had one common thing. They had all been drawn to this Christ. They had been drawn to Jesus of Nazareth. There's, they had been gathered together as a little flock 
The Lord had chosen these men named, were named because they were chosen. Jesus said, you did not choose me. You just didn't follow me because you liked what I was saying. I chose you. And interestingly, the scriptures tell us if we look in the Matthew of the story of Christ choosing these named men, these 11 now disciples, little word in there says, Jesus prayed all night and then chose Peter, James, John, Andrew, and so forth. He prayed all night. This was a practice that Jesus had carried out. It is a habit that he had. It was a, a thing that Christ did himself from the very earliest days of his ministry, you read about Christ praying and observing Christ praying on one occasion, the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And we know then what the Lord told them in the formula we call the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer for the disciples. So prayer had been a part of this little band of disciples from the beginning. And the scripture says here, these with one accord were devoting themselves. This was their devotions. What are your devotions? Two things. Study the word, which they'd been doing for 40 years. I mean, for 40, 40 days at the feet of Jesus, and now prayer. Now, they didn't know it, but they were going to be in a prayer meeting for 10 days. Because from 40 days when Jesus ascended to the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit came, and we know the story of the things that happened on that time, on that occasion, 10 days. So this prayer meeting was a 10-day prayer meeting. One accord, talking about Christ, sharing their experience and their understanding of Him, and praying. I love the word that says they devoted themselves. You know, there's, there's, a, whole, there's a whole sermon series right here in verse 14. All these, <laughs> it was not just one disciple or a group of disciples, it was the group. It was the confederated and molded group that the Lord had brought into existence to become the foundation. He, the cornerstone, they, the foundation of the church. Everything was going to be built upon their witness, their testimony, apostolic witness, which because it was eyewitness, it was, had authority with it. Apostolic authority was going to be the bedrock of the true church. All these were with one accord. It's hard to get two people in one accord, but to get this band of disciples thinking alike, focused, melded and molded together in purpose and intent. 
I think the reason they were in one accord is they had one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one hope of their calling. That's what they had. And as they were together in one accord, it says they devoted themselves. As I mentioned, this is a lesson to us about devoting, devotion, committing ourselves, giving ourselves over. The notion of devotion always has in it the idea of sacrifice. They sacrificed themselves, devoted themselves, separated themselves. This is a sanctification outworking. This is a holiness act. Devoting themselves to prayer. We're going to talk about prayer as we conclude. Together with the women. In Christ, there's neither male nor female, bond nor free, Jew nor Greek. We are one together, male and female. One of the sad things in our day is we have a war and we have enmity between the male and the female. We have serious questions about what is male and female. But in the Lord, He has always brought from the creation in the garden all the way through, God's people are one people, male and female together. And it was a group of women who, by the way, had been with the Lord throughout all of His ministry. And some people think that it was these women that had given sponsorship to the apostolic band. They had basically provided the logistical support that kept the disciples moving throughout much of Jesus' itinerant public ministry. And one particular individual, Mary, the mother of Jesus. How often do you see Mary show up in the life of Christ? Not just in the nativity, but in his going to the temple at age 12. His public ministry in Galilee, especially at Cana. Several other occasions you find it. And then you find Mary prominent at the crucifixion as an eyewitness to the death of her own, of her own son. And there she stays with the apostolic band from that moment on. She's an integ integral part of that whole group. And then there's an interesting group of people that are there, his brothers, these were not part of the original 12 disciples. The brothers, the sons of Mary, which she had with Joseph after Jesus was born, a virgin birth. Scriptures list four. It was James, who wrote the book of James. Judas, or Jude, who wrote the book of Jude. And then Simeon and Joseph. And some sisters. Here were men, young men, who at first didn't really understand and appreciate and even believe in the mission and the person of their older brother, Jesus. But somewhere along the way, I think it was probably just pretty, pretty close around the time of the resurrection. I think these boys were converted through the gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is what they saw and believed. They're all together and they're in prayer.
And the title that, that Mark has given this message is, is that returning to pray. It takes the first and the last of the verses there. Then they returned, and then the last one, they devoted themselves to prayer. I don't know if Mark intended this or not, but uh, I like that. And I'll tell you why I do. Return in the Old Testament. Turn and return are words that speak of repentance. Turn ye, turn ye, says the prophet. Return to me, the Lord implores the people. Returning is repentance. It's making a turnaround and going back to where you need to be. It's Jacob returning to Bethel. Back to Bethel. Back to the place where he had seen God. Bethel, the house of God. Returning back to the place where the Lord meets us. Where the place of God's presence is. And where the peace of God dwells. And where God expects us to be. And if we do nothing else in our hearts this morning but that, let's return to pray. Let's repent of our neglect and our lack and our avoidance of prayer in our personal lives. That's what I'm having to do to get ready to preach a sermon like this. Uh, I, and, and we're out of time, but let me just tell you what, what I'd love for you to do. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many people, don't show your hands, own a copy of the Institutes of the Christian Religion by Calvin. John Calvin, the young French reformer, was only about 25 years old or in, and when he wrote the first edition of the Institutes. The Institutes is just kind of an outline, a bare sketch of um, the Christian life. In fact, it was Calvin's first effort that was published to basically form a catechism to teach himself and young believers the basics of the faith. As the years went by, of course, it was expanded and revised, but it's a book y'all ought to have. Probably the best version is Battles, translation in two volumes. They're always available in our bookstore. Hope they are now. If you don't have a copy, you're way tardy in getting a copy. People tend to think of Calvin as dense and, and difficult and deep and dark and foreboding. and Nothing could be further from the truth. <laughs> he was actually a popular teacher. By that I meant he spoke to the populace, to the population. He was regarded, even Luther, who was slightly his senior, and had gone way before Calvin in so many great mighty works of the Re Reformation. Luther said that Calvin was the teacher. His whole purpose was to help us understand so many things of the Christian faith. And of course he dealt with what were a lot of the things that were considered errors and superstitions of the Roman church and there's a lot in there. But there's nothing better than 
chapter 20. Just read chapter 20. That's what I'm in the process of doing. I'd forgotten I'd read it. When I got my copy out and started looking at it, I saw little marks and underlines and my little pencil, you know, that I'd sort of scribble all over a book and realized that I had read it at some point. I don't know when. I don't remember. It was like reading fresh material. But Calvin covers so many things. He covers the notion of reverence, what it means to call upon the name of the Lord, to get a glimpse of that awe and majesty in the presence of God, that which Jesus spoke of when he said, hallowed be thy name. And basically Calvin says, we don't know how to pray. That's why the Spirit of God comes to aid us in our prayers. We know not how to pray. As we, we may know what to pray, but we don't know how to pray. He says the place we begin is with penitence, confession of sin, the prayer of the unrepentant. God cries out over and over to His people to hear Him and to keep His commandments and to obey His commandments, and His people don't listen. Then the people get in trouble and they cry out to the Lord for help because they're in trouble and they're in distress and God listens. He says we need a sincere sense of want, need, that recognition within ourselves of what we need and our insufficiency and our inadequacy and all that we are desperate to have. And we recall the words of Jesus, without me, you can do nothing. It says it is, we are humble supplicants for mercy. As in the Pharisee and the publican, the publican stood afar off wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. And he smote upon his chest and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Then Calvin tells us to pray with a confident hope. We have this confidence, John tells us, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Praying and believing or hand in glove. Ask and you shall receive. And then there's countless admonitions and corrections, all tremendous discussion. Well, if God is sovereign, if He knows everything, why do I need to ask Him? He knows I need it. Why don't He just give it to me? And are, what about the sovereignty of God? Does prayer change things? Does God have His mind made up and then we pray and ask and God changes his mind and does something different because we prayed. Ah, oh, interesting question. And then Calvin, and then he goes into the Lord's Prayer and takes it petition by petition. Our Father, our Father, and breaks it down all the way through. Just do that homework. And you don't have to do it by next week. Just stay with it for a while. The one thing I guess I'll conclude with this, that was helpful to me is to be reminded of the various aspects of prayer. And there's different kinds of prayer, just a whole uh, array of attitudes, postures, uh, expectations, 
modes, moods. But the one that has impressed me lately is the one that's called Brooding Prayer by J.I. Packer in his book, Brooding Prayer. And if you go to the farm, you'll find two things happening. You'll find an old mother hen sitting on a nest. And she'll sit there day after day. And if you try to get her off that nest, she will peck you. If you try to move her, she will get those wings and flurry in your face and make you give up because she'll go back and sit on that nest. A setting hen. I saw it as a kid on the farm. I love to see that. About, you know, three weeks, 20 days, she'll sit on that little pile of eggs. And if you'll look, nothing ever happens. <laughs> There's just eggs sitting in the nest, in the straw, and the mother sitting on top. That's like prayer. That's brooding. She's brooding. She's a brooding hen. But there's an expectation and there's an outcome. If you walk out of the barnyard, go out to the pasture, you'll see the cow sitting out there that's been grazing all morning. And now sits down in the, in the grass and just chews, chewing the cud, ruminating. That's prayer. Prayer is ruminating, meditating, brooding, going over and over in your heart the things that you desperately need from the Lord. Thinking about it. Hearing His voice. Hearing His silence. Staying. There's a whole lot more prayers you know. But that's the thing that just sort of struck me. Let our prayers at least have that feature from time to time. Just be in the presence of the Lord brooding, waiting, meditating, ruminating, thinking. In our Western philosophies, in our Western religion, we've got a work ethic, and boy, do we go to work. I think some of the Eastern religions have preserved the Oriental concept that is so strong in the Scriptures of waiting, meditating, in fact, the word for prayer and meditation are used interchangeably in a few places in the Scripture. I'll give you one outcome. The Bible says Isaac was in the field brooding, <laughs> meditating, praying, sitting out in the field. And coming toward him was a caravan that had in it his bride. And I think that's the way the Lord's prayers are. We see that in the prayer in John 17 where Jesus said he prayed for us. He was brooding. He was longing. He was asking the Father. He was getting ready to face a cross. He was going to go through an ordeal. He was going to suffer. 
His spirit was greatly vexed, greatly troubled. A lot of emotion in prayer. But he was doing it because he knew he would look up real soon and see a bride. 